Australia's cultural and creative history is ancient. For more than 60,000 years, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been telling stories, painting, sculpting, weaving, singing and dancing, making and creating. But the past two decades have seen great disruption to this proud and ongoing culture. I love that they tried to take away our languages so that we couldn't share our stories. So we learnt the white way to speak stories and then we learned how to write in white ways so that we could publish in black ways through the written word to make sure our stories still come across every platform. (laughs) What a bold community. So how do we all reconcile this collective trauma of dispossession, dislocation and cultural disconnection? Hi, this is In The Making, a podcast by Makeshift that explores creativity as a prescription for challenging times. I'm Jennifer Macy, and Makeshift is a support and education agency that connects creativity and mental health for social change. Creativity is proved to be an empowering self-care tool to look after your mental health. Makeshift works to make these tools accessible to everyone, whether you think you're creative or not. Each episode, In The Making will speak to a diverse group of creative people who found that their practice has done just that help them through tricky times. For Curly Saunders, a proud Gunai woman and poet, healing comes from writing. While she was working as the Aboriginal cultural liaison at Red Room Poetry, Curly founded the Poetry in First Languages project. This project brought together Indigenous writers and school students with cultural elders on country to learn first languages. Here, Curly learned the Gundagara language and has woven these words into her work, in her poetry collection Kindred, and in her new book Bindi, a novel in verse for school kids. Bindi was written in response to the catastrophic bushfires that devastated Gundagara country in the southern highlands. And it's a call to preserve the glossy black cockatoo, or garrel. In this episode, we talk about poetry, about establishing a self-care creative habit and how writing poetry in language is both a form of resilience and resistance. And just a quick heads up, this conversation might be confronting for some listeners, so please take care while listening. Kujaga. Nya gameri naini mundu. Empty spaces for Gomoang words to fill and stretch your guri for the piala and their voices. Nya gamiri, your trembling limbs ache to shake in tangara and hear your lungs as they gasp yungumpa. Nya feel your body, sans burengiling, yabun and secret, and know that it is being grown with roots wrenched from the daori that cradled them. And ya taste the hunger and to know the parts of yourself, to feel your wong when your dui has been taken. We do Nya Curly Saunders. I'm a proud Gunai woman. My family were born and raised on Gunangara country, and we have ties onto Yuan lands as well through my mother's and grandmother's line. And then on my grandfather's side, where Russell's from around Birapai country, so up near Tari, moved on to the mission at La Perouse. And so where is Gunai country? Yeah, so Gunai is East Gippsland, um, Victoria. 
So around Lake Tyres, Bungyanda Mission. So I was born on Gundungara country, which is over the just over the escarpment um, up around Mitigong and Barrel. And I moved down to the Illawarra eight years ago when I started teaching at Ferry Meadow Demonstration School. And it's a beautiful space to be down here on saltwater country. And Dijuri Guranini Burengiling, thank you, ancestors of this lands, Darawal, Alawa. You and Wadi Wadi peoples, yeah, it's um, it's so special to be a visitor in this saltwater dream in um, beneath this beautiful. We're just sitting beneath Mount Gira at the moment, looking up at Kira and that that sacred women's dream in. So very special. Yeah, that view of Mount Kira is amazing. Mm-hmm. So tell me, how did you come to the poetry? I had a year eleven teacher, Haley Chisholm, who's currently at Coromel High, so working locally, um, and she slid poetry books across the desk to me and said, hey, I think you'd really like these. Um, You know, they were written by dead white guys. They were very colonial. They had nothing to do with me. But I I really found joy in the wordplay and the all of those poetic devices and techniques that were so concise in telling stories and so impactful in in punching home meaning. And from there, I I just started writing poetry and poems and rambles. And I didn't know that's, that's what they were. From there, The Incredible Freedom Machines, my debut picture book was born and and I sat down with a friend who's a writer, Yvette Pishoglian, incredible Australian children's author, and she said, Kels, you know that's poetry. I'm like, no, I'm a I'm a and you know, I'm writing narratives. She's like, Yes, and <laughs> it's poetry. You should really explore it more. So that's how I became connected with Red Room Poetry, who's incredible artistic director, Dr. Tamron Bennett, lives locally as well down in the Illawarra. We've got so many talented creatives. She commissioned one of my early my very early works. What was that like to be writing in that way? Was it a difficult? I think there was a lot of imposter syndrome and that still comes out now, you know, in different forms. Um, But for me, it was really just a self-expression, just taking an idea or a feeling and taking a line to a page and taking that line for a walk and whatever it turned into was what it was meant to be on that day. And I wasn't writing then for publication. I was just writing for the sake of writing. So that creative process is different now, I suppose, to the creative process I maintain currently, which it tends to be for commission or publication um, or for stage. At the moment, I'm writing plays with Marigong Theatre and Southeast Arts and Playwriting Australia and also picture books um, and variations of, a, of those verse novels and things with Magabala. So my creative process feels different because now there's a really tight timeline and also outcomes rather than it just being a a form of self-expression but I guess the essence is the same. Poetry also just feels I just find it a a bit of an alchemy. Totally yeah yeah. (laughs) So draw back the curtain a little bit how do you sit down and do it? I think my creative process starts before I get to paper so um, I wake in the morning I do yoga I recently did my yoga teacher training I do a lot of meditating and I eat something delicious or drink something nice and warm and cozy. And then I'll sit down either with my laptop or my phone or a 0.4 black outline marker and a piece of paper, <laughs> blank online. <laughs> and um, I'll, I'll start by sort of doing a stream of consciousness first, I guess, which was introduced to me by the late Candy Royale, one of Australia's most profound poets. And 
that's just to take all of the ideas that are in your brain and, and put them onto a page without restricting them, without saying, oh, no, I have to change that or amend that or edit that. Um, it's just a, a constant stream. And then from there, I'll underline a few ideas or pull out a few of those and continue to write on those on a new page. And I find sometimes the poem that I'm trying to write is different to the poem that needs to be spoken. So then I'll start again with the poem that the truth telling with the poem that really needs to be written. And then from there, draft and edit and refine. I... I notice now I, um, I'm more interested in uh, rhyme or, yeah, looking at, at the tail ends of sounds or those medial sounds and trying to find patterns in them and to draw them together to create more of that wordplay. But at the start I was really against rhyme. I was like, no, I don't want to, you know, use this particular technique or, and I was much more fascinated with alliteration. or um, But there's really no set rules for how you write a poem you can try and and choose a particular structure if that feels right for you but essentially it's about the most effective self-expression the most effective means for expressing what you need to say what does it feel like when you're in that zone you've talked a bit about your preparation at the start of the day and then when you're in that zone of creativity what does that feel like for you yeah I think it um culturally I'm I'm fascinated in the dreaming the dreaming is this non-hierarchical space where you know so often you'll and you'll have felt it the moments where you get stuck in a conversation and time and space evaporate it's very akin to that there's this space of um, total flow and I think it is a total flow that is without time and space and you I might be there for hours whole days and float in and out of that that place of of timelessness so there's that's one element it feels like there's not a lot of I'm not bound by time in it it's just something I have to get out there's that's the other thing in urgency there's this real push in me of words or thoughts or ideas that need to be expressed instantly in this moment through that shape or color or sound or word and I record them rapidly there's also not an editorial my, my creative process when I'm in flow doesn't feel like I'm trying to change things or improve things or perfect things. It just comes up as it is. And um, that's a really freeing space to sit in. Does it feel like work or play or something Ooh, deeper even? Yeah, I think... There's definitely an element of both, you know, depends on um, what I'm what I'm creating for. Is it for commission or for publication or performance? Um, And then there's the element of play because it's so joyful or um, curious and creative. There's that really that really kind of fun, vibrant element to a creative process when you're in flow. But then there's this kind of deeper sense of connection, I think, that feels as though my story is your story and your story is mine. That there is this um, intimacy between the words or the ideas that I'm expressing that allow for another person to be seen and heard and also allow for me to be seen and heard in my authenticity. And so, yeah, the connection is a, a deeper space. Bloom. Plant your feet like roots next to mine. Bloom alongside me. Like leaf and vine, our tangled bodies... We'll always chase the sun.
Can you tell me about the Poetry in First Languages initiative and workshops that you run? Mm, So Poetry in First Languages aims to celebrate, share and preserve First Nations languages through poetry. It's delivered by Red Room Poetry, who are a non-for-profit that aim to create poetry in unusual ways. And they're just a phenomenal team. So I mentioned Dr. Tamarin Bennett earlier. Tamarin is the artistic director there. And I started working for Tamarin after I'd been in the classroom. And um, I wanted to create a project that would allow me to learn First Nations languages and allow me to support other poets to do the same. Um, because I wasn't raised with language up on Gunungara country and my mom was removed from Ewan country. So she was also raised without language. And, and I felt the longing for it for that kind of deeper connection to country through spoken word as a, as a writer. Did you learn your language? Yeah, so uh, through the Poetry in First Languages project, I sat alongside Ani Velma Mulcahy and Ani Trish Levitt and Auntie Sharon Halls and learnt Gunungara language. Um, and I chose Gunungara because I spent 22 years on that country and was born and raised there. The next iteration of my writing is taking me onto Ewan country and hopefully eventually down onto gra- on my grandmother's country, onto Gunai country, so following that matrilineal line. Um, but the Piffle Project, Poetry in First Languages, was to support other writers to do that too. So um, it was having children, elders and custodians in workshops on country, creating poems using First Nations languages that were taught during cultural exercises, so um, dance, storytelling, perhaps discussions around artefacts and tools, uh, ceremonies, smoking ceremonies, walks on, on the land, to express ideas around cultural identity and to also express our connection to country and conservation of country. But do some of the kids struggle with the idea of poetry? Oh, for sure. When you're doing the workshops? (laughs) Yeah, I think um, poetry is, uh, I mentioned before, written by dead white guys, right? Like I I had no black poets in my curriculum and I was only at school 10 years ago. Um, So not much has changed in that time. Mm. And I think if we're not looking at, you know, the work of, say, Dakota Farah, like really bold Bundjalung writer who lives on Darawal lands, who recently researched um, hip hop and rap, and the impacts of decolonial action through song by incredible First Nations artists. If we're not looking at those kinds of forms of poetry or First Nations writers, then our First Nations children don't feel seen or heard in poetry. And it wasn't until I worked at Red Room and I got to see a very diverse range of writers from range of minority groups, you know, who were speaking about cultural issues and colonization and trauma and intergenerational trauma that I felt really understood through poetry um I think also there's this idea of poetry has to be this set iambic pentameter and it must use particular kinds of language and have these particular line breaks it feels elite right and it's totally not I think the opposite and I definitely think the opposite when I look at um, rap and hip hop as poetry mm. and, and singing and um, like witty wordplay and banter. Our kids are so witty. They've got good bands, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I try and try and bring it back into them that way. And really just to make it to try and remove any of those ideas. Hey, a poem doesn't have to look or sound a particular way. You don't have to write a particular way. You can just express what you feel and you can show me if you want to or you don't have to then that feels a lot more freeing. Um, I think also just coming into those poetry workshops, for some children it might be the first time they've been collected with an elder on country 
and other First Nation students explicitly to just sit down and have a yarn and to learn different cultural um, wisdoms. So it can be really confronting if you feel like you don't fit into that space because you've never had the opportunity to. And so these are poems from all over Australia. So, yeah, Gawai is from all over Australia. It features the commissioned poets. So we commissioned First Nations poets from a range of different communities to create poems in language with their elders and custodians. So, yeah, you can find Gawaiu and all of the student poems online up on the Red Room Poetry website if you search poetry in first languages. Yeah, but we, we had them published on busbacks and key cups and trains and ferries. Um, and my favourite iteration of the project was on Gunungara land where we worked with the Department of Planning, Industry and Environment on their Glossies in the Mist project, which is a project that conserves the, the black cockatoo or garrel, as she's called up on Gunungara lands. And we planted shiric trees, the casuarina, which is um, the the species of tree that she relies on for feeding and um, raised awareness around the importance of us always having these dui, these dreaming trees, and always having um, garrel, this sacred bujan, this sacred bird who speaks of fire and sings in rain. You know, she's so important and our children are so crucial in that custodial care of country. So, and... Um, we had uh, an excerpt of that project published for the Animals Make Us Human book, which was um, by Penguin and edited by Leah Kaminsky and Meg Keneally. So um, it's gorgeous. It was created post-bushfires from 2019-2020 because a lot of the landscape that the garrel, the glossy black cockatoo, nests in through the, the Gunungara country has been affected by bushfires and uh, we're not sure yet what impact that will have on their nesting and continuation. So all of the proceeds from the book go to the conserving First Nations lands, but species, animal species all over country. Yeah. Um, the poem that features Inside Animals Make Us Human is actually from Bindi, which is my new book. And it talks about a young custodians, um, about an 11-year-old girl named Bindi who lives on Gunungara lands and is planting shiurks to take care of the glossy black cockatoos and uh, she finds one, a little baby. So, yeah, her experience around bushfires and land conservation and protection of sacred species as a custodian, as a young custodian. So this is from Bindi. It's called Garrel. And you'll hear some Gunungara words within this poem um, those words have been taught to me by Auntie Trish Levitt and Auntie Valma Mulcahy, so didjurigura nini aunties. Garrel. At school on a cloudy Tuesday, Auntie Lindy sits our class in a circle by the lake. She talks about respect in a space like this, about the timelessness of our meeting and the importance of caring for country that you sit on and the country you belong to. Auntie Lindy explains listening deeply means hearing from the heart, hearing with more than ears. She tells us of Garol, a bujan with symbolic colours, black, red and yellow, her dewey, dreaming, sacred to our nation, a totem bujan, one that sings in the carrot, rain, and speaks of can be, fire. We pause to hear her calls from far away. Na ora, na ora, na ora. Hands to Daori earth, we join auntie planting shiriks. We palm their seed pods, rough and symmetrical. She says that they will keep us safe and connect us to the old people. We drip water at the base of trunks to be, 
we erect small sentries to protect the seedlings. I hope they will withstand the drought and welcome the bujan and their carrot. It's so lyrical, the language too. It, oh, it's, it's melodic. I, I have loved, you know, through leading the Poetry in First Languages project with Red Room, I've had the opportunity to work across those 12 different languages to deliver over 60 workshops and then atop that to commission First Nations writers from all over Australia to create poems in language. And the most exciting thing about connecting elders with custodians and poets and students has been hearing the vast array of languages across and not even all of them you know um only like 26 of 650 dialects um but hearing even even from that that span hearing that span of languages and the beauty of those melodic sacred sounds is so so special Mm. Mm. That is a real gift, isn't it? But can I talk about the trauma now, and and particularly through the landscape? The landscape has suffered such a massive trauma with the bushfires. Mm. How do you work through that in your poetry? It's a Western idea to think that we are separate from the land. Um, I was taught that we are we are born from Mother Earth. We are here to care for her and that when we pass, we return to her and so on and so forth. It continues, you know. And um, in that way, we are her her beauty and her ferocity and her generosity and her, you know, incredible power. We are all of those things, that nurturing. And we have a responsibility to be nurturing for the land that we stand on and that we belong to, wherever that is. And that notion of belonging to land rather than the land belonging to us, I think is an important separation here. I find a lot of healing in writing about the landscape, in finding that connection back to her and and also in protecting her through the written word. So creating, you know, poems about for Bindi, a verse novel about the black cockatoo and about Gundungara country and um, cultural conservation of landscape through bushfire care, um, cultural burns, is it feels so necessary in a time like this where our land is being ravished by a bushfire that we could be caring for. Um, and, of course, fires are going to happen. But wouldn't it be awesome if we were engaging First Nations custodians and, up, you know, continuing that, cultural teaching across communities so that we could care for lands in traditional ways and finding continuation of of land care as it has been done for 65,000 years. And I think it's so important that we could think about how the land has always been maintained and cared for and how we could continue to contribute to that um, as First Nations and non-First Nations people living on country and off it. But how does it feel to see that the land isn't being cared for? Oh, of course. Deeply traumatic. <laughs> yeah, of, of course. Um, it's, yeah, it's really hard. You know, there's so many places that I I go to and I witness um, trauma through even things like erosion, um, farming, um, you know, building, tracks even through the bush that are continually pushed in, climate change. I watched really closely this year the relationship between uh, the flowers that bloom around the whale migration and when they did bloom, when the whales migrated. And I talked to some of the aunties up and down the coast and they were saying that it's late this year. And I was like, yeah, 
it is. And she said, I think these things are being impacted by, by our rising temperatures. Um, and what an interesting thought that I personally think that the whales could never be late. <laughs> They're always on time. <laughs> but, um, and they are, you know, on time with the season change, on time with the way that the world is shifting around us, um, on time with the ways that, that our landscape is changing because of human impact and without consideration for how we could be doing things better in our day-to-day it's it's sad and important and I feel moved to continue to write poems about the earth and the care for her and to draw attention to you know these beautiful sacred birds or these this whale migration or just any way that we're impacting the earth as we move across it. Is that why the conservation was so... And the walking on country was part of your poetry workshop? Totally. I think... um (laughs) <laughs> there were some times where we had our young ones sitting on the earth and they're like, auntie, I'm getting all dirty. And I was like, oh, great. Well, you're at one with the earth right now, you know, and you could see them kind of dusting themselves off from having been in comfortable classrooms. And I had a little little chuckle with some of the aunties that we were teaching with. Um, it's so easy to feel separated from the earth when there's concrete between you and it. And um, when you haven't got, you know, all of those elements touching you or um, you're not absorbed in them so the walk on land walking on country was definitely an important part of that and we spent a lot of time uh, down at Bundanon Trust working with some Gumia Darawal custodians uh, Jacob Morris and Ada Webster and doing just that and you could see the young people sitting on mossy rocks and playing with sticks as they wrote poems and um, holding ash from a cultural burn in their hand and creating artworks from that and um, feeling at one with the landscape. We're, we're far more inclined to have an empathetic understanding and feel a responsibility to care for something when we feel connected to it. And when we talk about the mother as our mother, well, you wouldn't harm your own mum, would you? You've got a poem in your book, Kindred, which mm-hmm. is called Disconnected. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, Disconnection was written on the banks of the Shoalhaven at Bundanon when I was writer in residence. And I could hear the sounds of ancestors singing and I wanted to know what they were saying. And I, that this was the prompt for me to go and learn language and to start the Poetry in First Languages project. But that disconnection is what I talk about in Kindred, what it feels like to be disconnected from land and culture and, and country and community because you've been raised without those things. Um, and the reconnection for me has been through writing, has been through meeting with community, other First Nations writers, other elders and custodians, um, and learning about how they are involved in the continuation and celebration and sharing and of culture in culturally safe and appropriate ways. Disconnection for me is a really important poem. I think it might be one of the most powerful poems I've ever written. Um, and the Gawaiu collection that I mentioned earlier, published by Red Room and Magabala, also features the Gundangara translation of Disconnection. So so originally published in Kindred and also in Gawaiu for All Times with Gandangara interpretations provided by Ani Trishlevit and Auntie Velma Mulkay. Gujaga. Nya gamiri naini mundu, empty spaces, for gomoang words to fill and stretch your guri for the piala and their voices. Nya gamiri, your trembling limbs ache to shake in tangara and hear your lungs as they gasp yungumpa. Nya feel your body, sans burangiling, yabun and secret. 
and know that it has been grown with roots wrenched from the da'auri that cradled them. And ya taste the hunger and ya nearly do to know the parts of yourself, to feel your wong when your dui has been taken. Little one, I see you mouth empty spaces for a mother's words to fill and stretch your ears for the stories and their voices. I watch your trembling limbs ache to shake in dance and hear your lungs as they gasp with songs unknown. I feel your body, sand spirit, ceremony and secret, and know that it is being grown with roots wrenched from the earth that cradled them. And I taste the hunger you do to know the parts of yourself, to feel at home when your dreaming has been taken. Disconnection for me is for, particularly for our generation of First Nations people, the generation who are born to parents that have been taken from their families or grandparents who have been raised on missions, um, who have had the impacts of colonisation deeply affect the ways that they are able to learn and continue to learn and be connected to culture so often I meet with young mob in schools and I look at them and they feel shame around that disconnection and I felt that so often as a kid too black to be white too white to be black and I didn't feel it fit in either world well and it's such a privilege to be able to support young people to feel safe and to navigate those spaces because there's no rule book for it and being connected to the earth and being connected to community are such big parts of whatever that journey looks like and maybe language is part of it and maybe it's not and maybe ceremony is part of it and maybe it's not um but we are not lesser for not having had all of those cultural experiences and I think when I wrote Disconnection I believed that I felt like I had a lacking that I needed to fulfill with things outside of me I didn't understand that um the connection to myself, to culture, to community, to all those ancestors who have, you know, who moved through me when I speak, that that was, that's, that's what it's about, yeah. But it feels like in that, you know, you might be talking about your own trauma, to use that word, but it's also, it feels bigger, it feels like a collective trauma and a history of dispossession and disconnection, so... longer and older than than you absolutely I'm currently moving through um I I I said I recently did my yoga teacher training and it's created this really beautiful meditation practice in me and really slowed me down um there's so much research around the way that healing yourself heals the future generations and also heals your past generations. And that idea of I am healing myself and in healing myself, I'm healing my community. And as my community heals, I'm also healed is such an interesting thing for me. And I love engaging in other First Nation writers' works and learning more about um, the deeper impacts of colonization and those dispossessions that you're talking about um, because I think that intergenerational trauma that we experience as First Nations people because of the impacts of our nation's history are so tangible in our day-to-day and so impactful and so harmful and draining, you know, and... I think it's important to be yarning about this and also if there's any mob 
listening and you want someone to yarn to, like, I'm here, come and have a yarn, we can have a cup of tea. Do you feel like the themes in Kindred are looking at that sort of bigger idea of dispossession and that sort of bigger collective trauma or was it more of a personal expression? Oh, I think I think both. There was, um, it, I mean, the Kindred is definitely written from my own personal experiences but also thinking about my family, thinking about community, thinking about future future family what that might look like yeah there's a a poem in kindred Darawal country and I wrote it up around Campbelltown and Appen um, which of course has a history of of massacres bark like hanging noose gum nut widow maker water enough to drown in there is trauma here wasp nest with spider skeleton Ants like homicide crime scene cleaners. Windows barred, new trees, old scars. There is trauma here. These sorts of experiences are me witnessing the world around and going, huh, I wonder if everybody else is looking at this same, you know, little spider skeleton or this interesting piece of bark hanging off this tree or... Yeah, these cicadas. Are they looking at these skeletons and also seeing the truer history of this landscape? Or would my written word, would my poem help alert us to the ongoing trauma that exists in the landscape while we're not truth-telling about what's happening? And and what happened was there was a, a huge massacre up on around Appen. And yeah. And, and, yeah, a lot of First Nations people were killed brutally yeah um and this kind of history is so common all across our nation yeah and writing poems about it talking about it have exploring my personal experience hopefully draws others first nations people into feeling held and seen and known and non-first nations people into having conversations that we need to have as a nation so that um yeah so that we can lift these traumas acknowledge them talk truthfully about them and begin to make real change so that we don't continue the desecration of sacred country and first nations communities writing these poems has been healing for me on a personal level level to acknowledge and explore the different experiences i have on country be that on or off country wherever i am and also to hopefully draw healing into community and writing these poems has meant I have conversations with my family has meant that um you know my mum gets to feel seen and held and and hopefully you know the gran um who raised her and and so on and so forth I mean so there's collective trauma and then there's collective healing and then it feels like almost you doing these workshops and producing these books in language feels like that collective healing Mm, yeah do you see it like that yeah I I mean I hope it's like that (laughs) um it's also just such a joy to work with mob you know um yeah Gawaii features some of Australia's best poets all First Nations it's First Nations produced First Nations published and it was powerful to work alongside Dr Janine Lean and Annie Tafu, another local um, Māori um, wahine sister who who was so strong, both of them, in ensuring that our stories got told the right way, you know, with community consultation, um, without trying to um, edit 
the words of our of our poets so often i think an experience for myself and other first non other first nations writers in australia is that our words get edited or um even things like our font systems are colonized trying to publish first nations languages in a lot of serif fonts will not show up the accents that have been used to write in language so even tiny things like that mean that um you know that that in publishing across australia that could be one one thing that edits the impact or the effect of first nations writers words and down to things like capitalization grammar even the editorial process when i'm working alongside um culturally safe editors i really feel that I'm able to have open discussions about my reasons for selecting particular words or line breaks where they are or, um, yeah. And, and I feel there's been such a powerful shift in the publishing world across Australia because of collections like Gawaii. And I love that there's audio recordings on the Red Room Poetry website and that it means that these poems are still being spoken as well. I, it was Ado Webster, um, Ewan Fowler, who's also features in this collection, and Jacob Morris, who said to me that if you want the land to remember or to awaken when you speak to it, well, you have to speak to it in language. And I feel like every time someone reads a poem in language, land just responds, goes, oh, I'm seen and heard here, you know, calling the land by its right name. So how important then is it that your work, your creativity is seen? Um, and how confronting is that if you are dealing with ideas of trauma? Mm-hmm. So there's always a vulnerability hangover, always, always a vulnerability hangover after you allow for, or for me, after I've allowed for authenticity to be expressed through singing, songwriting, art making or poetry or any kind of written word. I had an incredible panel at Wollongong Writers Festival last year with Tony Birch and Alison Whitaker, and... Alison was speaking about how so often when we create works, we're putting sort of trauma on display for the benefit of non-First Nations people to grow and learn um, and that that can be a really challenging experience. And and it's really changed my it, it changed my approach. I think in the past I would have been like, here's all my vulnerabilities and here's all my trauma and I'm going to share it with everybody because vulnerability is important. And now I think, yes, and how much of you needs to be held safe so that you can continue to do work in community and not become emotionally burnt out from constantly um, educating, feeling like you have to educate non-First Nations communities and also from just being entirely vulnerable. Like, where is the self-care balance here? So, um, yeah, in, in that notion of, of self-care, I think I'm less inclined to publish everything now, more select works which are about which are very intentional. And also I have the opportunity now to be, I suppose, more selective now that I've written um, sort of more books or been published more widely. Um, I have the opportunity to be selective about who I publish with or how I publish, checking in with organisations or publishing houses and saying, hey, do you have First Nations publishing protocols? Do, what, what are your cultural safeties within your organisation? How many mob are you employing at the moment? Are you providing paid employment pathways for emerging First Nations creatives? And it's one reason I absolutely adore Magabala books. Who have published Kindred and Gawaii. They're just hands down killing it <laughs> in community. And, you know, Firefront was created with UQP and Red Room Poetry have really sound cultural protocols. And I don't work now 
with orcs who don't do that stuff. I, I check them very quickly and it's kind of, I call people into action, which I was so afraid to do at the start of being a writer. And now I think me doing that means some other young emerging writer doesn't have to do that. Mm. And thank God <laughs> that they can be safe. Yeah. yeah. There's even a poem called Self-Care. Poem called, yeah. <laughs> do you see the the creativity as part of that self-care? Absolutely. I think it's part of the truth-telling of self-care. It's part of that dipping into deeper emotions which underlie maybe our our subconscious action. And that's also part of my meditative experience each morning to sit down and, you know, get back in my body, recreate a connection between the mind, body and breath and say, well, how am I feeling today and what do I need today? I think that's important. Self-care used to be this kind of more bougie thing where I'd, you know, get my face mask, get my nails done. And now it's a lot more or um, earthy, I think. It's, a, you know, my self-care involves more time outside, more time with really beautiful humans who love and care for me and likewise who I love and care for, more time creating and connecting to myself and playing music, having some kind of expression of those ideas and feelings. Mm. So has the creativity shifted in some way? I'm really enjoying singing at the moment and that's sort of new and different for me. I'm enjoying writing music and um, I'm not sure if that's just because I've been slower or because um, I'm trying to express in different ways or... I think if I drop my practice, I always come back to it. And it might be eight weeks between or it might be two days or two weeks. But it's something that is a constant in my life and has probably always been, even as a child. I played a lot of music. I danced. I made art as a kid. So there was always some kind of creative avenue for me to come back to. And that kind of homecoming is a really safe place in my life. So I also can get quite frustrating for everybody around me (laughs) if I'm not being creative because it's a processing place. It's a space for me to self-express meaningfully and to find connection with other people over shared experiences. So if I'm not doing that, well, then that's just kind of hovering in the ether (laughs) because it's a finding flow is finding a rhythm. And it's almost like being out of sync with yourself. Yeah. What is one creative thing that you think listeners could do today? I'd say go meditate. Yeah, it's probably one of my favourite. And it seems kind of curious to be like, meditate, not creative. But I think it creates within you a space to be able to access yourself and to access subconscious thoughts or underlying beliefs and also to be able to explore that, that prana, that energy, that life force and that connection with other spirits and yourself and your breath and your mind and your body. And that's such a beautiful thing to create. It might not have a tangible object that people look at in a gallery and go, wow, that's pretty, or a book on the shelf or a piece of music that you can listen to. But the space that you create when you meditate might flow into those objects. And even if it doesn't, carving out time for yourself is so important. Mm. And if somebody wanted to put some words on a page, how would you encourage them to do that? Mm. Well, after you've meditated, (laughs) grab that, that pen and that piece of paper or a laptop, whatever feels comfortable for you to write on, to record ideas with, 
and do your stream of consciousness, sit down, set a timer for four or five minutes and write continuously without gaps and without editing and see what arises for you. And if it's something in that needs more of a, um, an exploration, then turn to another page and start on that idea and edit that and refine that and rework that. And from there you might have a poem or you might have the surface poem and the true poem is sitting underneath it, in which case do the process again and rinse and repeat as necessary. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. It's been such a pleasure yarning with you and um, stay creative uh, and stay safe in these crazy COVID times and more importantly, stay connected. And this poem is Star Swapping. When we were little, my sister and I would close our eyes and ask each other about the colours we could see. Swapping stars in the dark, lashes fusing, noses scrunching and softening as we spoke. Back then, we didn't have a name for the universe. No explanation for her expanse and depth. The constellations were contemplations we hadn't arrived at yet. And now we have. There's a sea between us. As I rest in Shavasana, I watch the sky unfolding, her width and wilderness, my own calm creation. In this space, my attention flows to those stars, to their glowing edges and illumination. Strung to our connection, I sail one across the water, to a night's depth of sleep where her eyes are sealed. I hope we speak in silent ways as sisters do. I hope for all times she sees it too. A big thank you to Curly Saunders, award-winning poet and author. Curly's latest book in verse is called Bindi. Her book of poetry, Kindred and children's picture book, The Incredible Freedom Machines, can be found at your favourite local bookstore. In the Making podcast is by Makeshift, a support and education agency connecting creativity and mental health for social change. Discover more about how creative practices are good for your health at makeshift.org.au and you can get 10% off our press play programs with the code in the making. And if you want to learn how to support your friends and family going through a difficult time, you can sign up to one of our mental health first aid courses. For more, follow Makeshift on Instagram and Facebook. And if this episode has brought up any issues or triggers for you, contact Beyond Blue on 1300 22 4636. That's 1300 22 4636. If you like this podcast, leave us a review on your podcasting app of choice. Or even better, tell your friends to listen. The theme music was composed and performed by Alana Stone. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our sound engineer is Chris Hancock. Logo and cover art are by Chiara Mucci. You can find links to all their work in our show notes. Makeshift was co-founded by Caitlin Marshall and Lizzie Rose. I'm Jennifer Macy. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast was produced on the land of the Wadi Wadi people of the Darawal Nation. I acknowledge and pay my respects to the original storytellers and artists of this land. (laughs) 